Hello and welcome to the That's Afterlife podcast with dear Mr. Anson and Adrian Mills. Hello, thank you so much for joining us. Us being me, Esther, and Adrian, who has had a, a very important milestone this week, I understand, Adrian. <laughs> I am so pleased you noticed and have realised. Um, any rumours about my impending divorce, forget it, because I succumbed to my wife's wishes and had my hair cut. But I had my hair cut for the simple reason. One person actually stopped me and said, do you know who you remind me of? A cross between Rambo and Robinson Crusoe. So, Adrian, get your hair cut. Well, yes. A, was it difficult to get an appointment? Because I gather there's a fantastic waiting list. And B, what did it cost you? I managed to get an appointment because I think that initial rush has gone now. It was not cheap, Esther. £60. Well, you see, by female standards, that's not extraordinary. You know, I'm a Liverpool lad. I'm used to paying a tenner down the local barbers. I was inveigled by a magazine to go and get my highlights done. I've never seen so much palaver over, you know, he was doing it by geometrical diagrams. He had about three assistants hovering around him. And in the end, it came up looking the way it always looked. It, but the price... I think it was, oh, something like 400 quid. What? See? My friends all have their hair done, all the girls that I know, and the prices that they pay just make my jaw drop. They really do. Do you have rows with your wife about the amount of money she spends on stuff? Actually, Nikki is brilliant. I mean, she doesn't really spend a particular a vast amount of money. And she always says, you know, what lockdown has taught us all is you don't actually need half the stuff. But I did have one girlfriend called Marion, who you may remember I was going out with when I first joined That's Life. And she used to hide new purchases under the bed. And, and I would go, hang on, what, what are these enormous long black leather boots? How long have they, oh, have they been there for ages? Now, I'm getting a picture of a certain meanness a certain miserliness <laughs> no no that's an awful thing to say am i painting that sort of picture you are to have a girlfriend who had to hide her boots under the bed even she couldn't justify the expense mm. Mm. well i fortunately was married to a gentleman who believed that nothing was good enough for me and he oh would... esther come on don't make me feel bad he would spend a fortune and I was the mean one actually I looked at the price he'd paid for you know a new pair of designer jeans or something he had much better taste than me too do you see so he would buy these fantastic things and I would say we can't spend that on it so I think you ought to loosen your um, tight wad tendencies. <laughs> I, I don't I am I am a generous husband Esther I would like it known <laughs> Thank goodness my wife's not sat next to me listening to this. <laughs> Do you know, you've made me feel really bad. I'm so pleased. <laughs> <laughs> well, our guest today knows all about television and he was my best boss. He is Lord Grade, Michael Grade. Mm. And the anecdotes he will have about the peccadilloes of famous people God knows. I'm really looking forward to it. And it's funny because um, he was my boss as well. Um, I, I'm slightly nervous. I don't know whether to call him Lord or Sir or Boss. You know, will Michael suffice? We'll have to find out. We will. But um, we'll find out a lot more. And he's also, I'll be interested to know what he's going to take into the afterlife with him as well. What do you think? 
I, I don't know what his hobbies are. I always remember him wearing very bright red braces. Um, so I think he's going to take a set of braces. But anyway, we will find out. Now, Esther, we, we've had some listeners send us, as always, their emails and their, their favourite life hacks. Uh, we, I, I absolutely love getting them, and they're, they're brilliant. So, uh, so whatever subject, send it to us at hello at that'safterlife.com. And, uh, and please, please, before I forget, don't forget to uh, subscribe to our podcast. Do give us a five-star rating. How could you give us anything less? Um, this email comes in from Ali, right? Hello. Oh, hello. Hello, Dame Esther and Adrian. Um, as a lady of 52, that's Ali, not me, I can honestly say that that's life was a big part of my childhood. As a child, I loved Balls the Fruit Bat and remember Annie Mizzen with such fondness. She was a real character. Unfortunately, to this day, the theme tune still makes me feel slightly queasy because it used to signal bedtime and school the next morning. Ah, well, I remember the fruit bat called balls. It was really funny. Kieran Prenderville um, was the reporter on that one, I think. And he he obviously became a, a very famous playwright. He wrote Bally Kiss Angel, which was an extremely popular BBC drama, yeah. among other things. Interesting, Adrian, the way some of our That's Life presenter go on to great things and some don't. <laughs> oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. That, that tongue has been sharpened over the weekend. I can sense it. What, what has happened to me? I have become slightly vicious. Um, yes, no, uh, to answer that Ali's question, it... It started out very late on Saturday night, and then I was summoned in to see the controller of BBC One, whose name was Brian Cowgill. Uh, he was terrific um, with my boss, my programme editor. And Brian said, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of, he came from up north. I won't try and do an impression. No, please I'm, do. I'm thinking of, of moving it to Sunday night. What do you feel about that? Well, uh, I'm Jewish. And I said to Brian, um, I always thought that Sunday was a sacred day in the Christian week and we make some rude jokes. Won't some of the viewers mind? And he looked at me as if I was talking in old high Tibetan. <laughs> and he said, well, I, I'll put you after nine o'clock. I don't think anyone will worry. Well, it was a genius bit of scheduling because there was absolutely no journalism of any kind on Sunday nights. We were the only show that had any reference to life as it was lived. And the other wonderful thing about it was Sunday night is the only night that MPs, politicians watch. So suddenly we had the prime minister watching us. We had, you know, all, all the, the House of Commons watching us because they knew that their constituents, the people who voted for them or voted against them would be watching and they wanted to be across it all. So the moment he put us at an accessible time, instead of half past 11 at night, he put us on at, you know, five past nine at night. Mm. A lot of people like Ali were kids who were being allowed to stay up to see it as the last thing they watched on a Sunday night. And I suddenly saw that our ratings were inflating at a rate you wouldn't believe. I mean, they went from 7 million to 10 million to 15 million to 20 million. Yes, yes. And what it meant was that nobody interfered with us. You know, the bosses lean in and make, you know, crazy decisions. One of, one of our bosses made me sack Cyril Fletcher, which was... No, I never knew. It made you sack him. 
I was dragged in to see a different controller, BBC One, and he said, I want you to get rid of Cyril. What was the reasoning? I just don't know. Obviously, that uh, rift healed because uh, we, we re sort of went down to see him. I was living on the, was it the Isle of Man or Jersey or Guernsey or somewhere, I seem to remember. And I think for his 90th birthday, we all uh, went down and visited him, gave him a surprise visit with a birthday cake. We certainly did. It was Guernsey and it taught me a very, very important life lesson why you should never, ever argue with your cameraman or your director. What happened? Well, the uh, director was um, running a bit late because he was, and I got a bit impatient because I had to fly back. I hate telling this story against myself. Anyway, I rang him up, the director, and I said, whether you finished or not, I'm going to come now. I had been eating sandwiches and I arrived on set and we did the little sequence surprising Cyril and I smiled winningly at him. Anyway, we finished shooting, I flew home. I looked at the rushes. I said to the film director who was by now in London with me, shouldn't we have a close up of me smiling winningly? He said, have a look at the close up. And there was a huge black olive stuck <laughs> to my front tooth. I don't mean to laugh. <laughs> I look like the witch from Endor. And I said to him, why didn't you tell me? And he said, you weren't in a very good mood. Esther Anson, not in a good mood? Surely not. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, Lord Grade, Michael. Good morning, good morning. Good morning. Now, I'll tell you what we were talking about, Michael, because I've been rather mean to Adrian this morning, I've been rather rude. It, it made me think about presenters these days and how rude they are, what you might call the Piers Morgan syndrome. What's your take on this? I find it completely unnecessary. Um, the best interviewer, political interviewer there's ever been uh, was uh, Brown Walden. Mm. Uh, and he engaged on an intellectual level. He had time, of course. He had his interviews, his famous interviews of Margaret Thatcher and her pomp were an hour long. So he had time. Now, I wouldn't ever disagree with you about anything, Michael, except that for me, the best political interviewer of all time was David Frost. David was a different, uh, different animal, uh, completely different. Hmm. Uh, and he had his own style. And, he was he was the most brilliant thing he was able to do was to win win people's confidence and get them you know the object of an interview journalist interview is to get people to say something they didn't mean to say and there was nobody better than david at doing that i agree with that he he disarmed people he was such a lovely chap you know what annoyed me a bit about Piers when he was having a go at all the politicians, so much so that they wouldn't come onto his show, was that if he didn't shout at them and interrupt them and prevent them actually from answering, he might have beguiled them the way David did into admitting why they were making bad decisions, which I think at the beginning of the pandemic they were. So I was interviewed on, uh, on Piers Morgan's breakfast show. Why, he, I don't think, he didn't interview me, one of the women, presenters interview me about something else I can't remember what it was about and she eventually do you mind if I ask you what's your view uh, of the fact that politicians are refusing to come on this program so I, being an ex-broadcaster and all the rest of it I think she thought I was 
you know, going to be very supportive. And I said, well, I mean, they've got every right not to appear on your programme. They're very busy people running the country. I said, uh, well, she said, you know, they're denying six, uh, three million viewers or whatever it is. I said, you're assuming that those three million people, three million people, the only television they watch is Piers Morgan. I said, I don't think, I think you want to get out more, dear, you know. <laughs> <laughs> she was, she, they were so fuming. It was wonderful. You know, the arrogance of broadcasters today is something to behold, to be honest. You know, we've gone from uh, the old days, the 1950s. Uh, very good of you to join us this evening, Minister. Is there anything you want to tell the nation? Yeah. <laughs> this evening, yeah. We've gone from that to being so completely rude. And, but it's the arrogance I can't deal with. Well, the other problem is, you see, that these days, if a politician says, well, I don't know, then they get pilloried. Completely. I'm so I don't this mean this to be two grumpy old people attacking modern television. And another thing. <laughs> and another thing. I'm going to ask you, I've sent I sent Michael a list because I want to know the answer to, to this list, and it's sometimes yeah. difficult. Now I've got it all here. Got all Thank the answers you. for you. Okay. So first of all, who is the funniest comic you ever saw or worked with? Well, there are two. I'm afraid there are two answers. This television, Morecambe and Wise, unquestionably, yeah, beyond any shadow of a doubt. Yeah. And on stage in the UK, Ken Dodd, without any any shadow of a doubt, funniest man ever, ever. I've never seen. I've never seen audiences begging for mercy, literally begging for mercy. Well, that was after four hours of him, wasn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. He used to say, "He used to say, you come and see me." He said, "You." It's, it, what was it? He said, oh yeah, he's very safe coming to see me. He says because you, you'll be going home when it's light. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about comedians from the you know the sixties, the seventies, or whatever. Uh, and interesting, my friends recently said, "I'm watching Faulty Towers. Isn't it brilliant?" And I'm thinking, "Wow, 1975." So is that because talent, real talent, comic genius is very thin on the ground nowadays? It always was thin. We tend to telescope our memory. You know, we remember a period of Benny Hill and this one and that one. That was over 30 years. You know? yeah. uh, but today, the geniuses today are Eddie Izzard, Peter Kay, complete, complete genius. Well, I think Michael McIntyre is. I think Michael McIntyre is. Very clever. I think he's he's a brilliant, brilliant performer. His material is wonderfully a beautiful observation and absurdity. But I find him, I don't find him intrinsically funny. I think you're the wrong gender. May may well be, may well be. But I think he's, I, I, you know, I think he's brilliant at what he does. Now, you famously um, courted disaster by axing... Doctor Who, although you now claim that you only did it as a temporary measure. Oh, I did. I never said that. I never said it was temporary. Oh, okay. In fact, I was quite shocked when the bastard came back again. Yeah, indeed. But I'm wondering with your views on the Eurovision Song Contest, whether you actually, if you were running the BBC, would axe that? No, 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 no. Why not? Well, you've got to have something, you've got to have something to laugh at, uh, something to ridicule. It's wonderful. It's ludicrous. The whole thing is ludicrous now. It's all political. The voting's all political. And we see through it. And the great thing is that Graham Norton in the, in the Terry Wogan doesn't take it seriously. The viewers don't take it seriously. 
how tough is it to make these decisions to go with a program or to axe a program? And I speak as a man who was in four episodes of Doctor Who. Be careful what you say. Uh, it's, it, it's decisions made for you in a way. Your, your instinct, uh, the research that you've done, and you watch a show with your own eyes and you realise it's run out of steam. <laughs> you just know it. That was a very easy decision. Very easy decision. Some shows go on forever. I mean, shows that I commissioned in, in the 1900 and frozen to death, uh, like Casualty, are still running, you know. Amazing. Who was the biggest diva you ever worked with? Uh, not television, but when I was uh, in in the live theatre of talent agency business, we, we brought uh, Judy Garland over for her last professional appearance. We didn't know that at the time. Uh, and that was a nightly nightmare. Um, she was out of control, really, but she needed to go on. She needed the money and, and, and so on. And she was sold out for six weeks at a, at a nightclub we ran called the Talk of the Town, which was a big cabaret showcase. We had Diana Ross and the Supremes, you name it. They all played there, Ethel Merman. And she came over. She had no music. Uh, Ex-husband had impounded her music. Uh, so we had every arranger and copyist in London working 24-7 for three days to recreate Dot's uh, manusc music manuscripts from her Judy at Carnegie Hall album. Uh, and by the skin of our teeth, we got her on on Monday night. The problem was every night she went on later and later and later, uh, and people were coming from miles around to see her, and missing trains, and she didn't get on till midnight, half past, due on at 11, you know. It was a nightmare, and I was deputed to go and try and explain to her that she was shortchanging her fans by going on so late. She listened to me, and when I finished my spiel, which I had rehearsed, she put a glass of wine down. She looked at me, and she's a young man. She said, nobody pays to see Judy Garland go on stage on time. She said, All I have left to sell is drunk. So I made my exit and left. There was no answer to that. Even I didn't have an answer. <laughs> but when she went on this little old lady sort of turned up at the stage door she she didn't use the dressing room she changed at the ritz got in a car went across leicester square which you could do in those days and we as soon as we knew she'd left the ritz we queued the orchestra for the for the big overture and she'd come in the stage door look in the mirror do that grab the mic and go on and suddenly a star appeared from this wreck of a woman who was only in her late 40s she looked you know she looked like Edith Piaf at the end you know it was it was heartbreaking but the the voice and the person and they were so pleased to see her it was breathtaking so you couldn't be cross about it because that's what you that's what you booked you know but my god was she wonderful when she went out there one of the things that your friend my friend Bill Cotton once told me he went to the dressing room, banged on the door, opened the door, and saw the father beating little Michael Jackson. And he said to me, I just didn't know what to do. You know, I didn't know how to stop it, what to say. Terrible, that. Horrendous. It explains a lot, but it begins to explain a little bit about, the, you know, the, the lack of normality and, and grounding and uh, roots in his life. It, that was his relationship with his father. Horrendous. I've had a few lock themselves in the dressing room, not come out. Dusty Springfield, Elton John. No! Yes. Yes. 
How do you get them out then? In Dusty's case, this was at the talk of the town again. She, we told her not to sing it. We, as we said at the dress rehearsal in the afternoon, sing one song that save your voice for tonight. Get the, get comfortable with the sound, and then walk through the rest. And she insists she was, she was so enjoying herself at the dress rehearsal. She, and of course, come eleven o'clock. So I'm sitting in the stalls with the, the director, Bob Nesbitt. I'm looking at our watches and it's five past, ten past. I said, Bob, we better go back, see what's happening. Something's wrong. So we go back and Bob saw her dress hanging and he picked it up and he said, come along, Dusty, darling. He said, put your dress on. And the first words she spoke in this, in this moment were, why don't you effing put it on? <laughs> and he hung it back up. We left the dressing room. He said, I think we're in trouble. I said, Elton's in the audience. He only needs a piano. Let me go and ask him if he'll, if he'll busk a few songs for us, keep the curtain up, which he absolutely did. He was sweet as, sweet as pie. And I took him backstage and we set a piano and everything. And he said, and, and as, as I got backstage, I could see Dusty in full stage kit ready to go on. So I looked at Elton and said, thank you very much, but I think she's going to go on. Oh, great. And she croaked her way through her act, and uh, it was like that every night. It was a nightmare. But there you go. She was great. You're talking about music and everything. I obviously have to ask you about uh, Live Aid. Uh, that must be such an amazing decision to know that you're going to set up the whole channel to broadcast live across the world. Well, it started earlier than that. I, I, I hadn't been the control of BBC One for very long. I had come back from Hollywood. My PA said, uh, there's, buzzed me through and said, there's a Mr. Geldof on the phone. I said, who's he? I haven't got a clue. She said, oh, the Boomtown Rats. I said, was it some pop group or other? She said, yes. Uh, oh, I said, put him on. We'll have some fun. You know, I thought I'd just take the piss out of it. You know? And there was something in his voice, something about the way he approached me that was super intelligent and urgent and the rest of it. Uh, and from that to Wembley was, wasn't a difficult decision, wasn't a difficult decision. And I became a trustee of the, of the Band Aid Live Aid Trust, which I still am. And we're still, we're still dishing out money to help people. It's extraordinary. He's a force of nature. He was, we'd be sitting in the early trustee His PA would come in and say, uh, Bob, is President Mitterrand on the phone for? I'll tell him to F off. <laughs> and this was going on all the time. Now, when we if we can get these trucks to the Sudan, and then we can do we can do. Uh, President Mitterrand's back on the phone. Tell him unless I get this, 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 and this, I don't want to talk to him. I don't want to be seen with him. Uh, everybody wanted to be. Every leader of the world wanted to have their picture taken with Bob Gilmore, and he he was brilliant at leveraging that to getting what he wanted. He was absolutely fearless with these people. It was hilarious. Can I ask about one of your scheduling genius moments, um, Neighbours? Yes. How did all that come about? Uh, we were only up the daytime on BBC One, and my job was to fill with no money. They gave me no money to do it with, but they said fill the daytime schedule. So I said to a colleague, Roger Lawton, I said, we need, we need a soap opera that, you know, where there are thousands of episodes that we can run every day or fill half an hour or an hour. I said, go to America, go to Australia, New Zealand, anywhere with our sensibilities and see if he can find me a show. So he came back, he said, there's nothing in America. I said, I'm not surprised. He said, but there are two shows in Australia that are worth looking at. I'll sit down, let's watch it. We watched the tapes. 
He said, which one do you think? I said, I think Neighbours. Which one do you think? He said, I think Neighbours too. I said, right, let's buy it. So we bought Neighbours. Uh, and I scheduled it wrongly. I had it on at 9.30 and 1.30. And my daughter was at school at the time told me she'd been in trouble at school. I said, what, what happened? She said, oh, she said, we were caught watching television at half past one in the lunch break. We found a TV in the school. We were all crowded around. I said, what were you watching? <laughs> yeah, whatever the scheduler. She said, oh, a thing called Neighbours. Christ, I said, we've got it in the wrong place. I rushed back to the office the next day. So we've got to move Neighbours. Got to move from 1.30 to when the kids had got home, five o'clock. So we moved it, and the rest is history. We had no idea. We had no idea that it was going to be the hit that it was. It was really down to my daughter getting into trouble at school. Never mind about audience research and a whole department doing all the work. That'll do me. The kids want to watch it. <laughs> That's amazing. I want to ask you about um, a very interesting issue um, that has come up clearly, which is Me Too. And the allegations about um, the actor who had just been given um, a big award by BAFTA. How would you have dealt with this? Innocent until proved guilty. I, I, I don't like, I don't like uh, guilt by accusation. Now, it may, it may turn out that, you know, a lot of the allegations are true and that he's misbehaved. We don't know. It's not been tested in a court. He hasn't pleaded guilty. Uh, and I'm... If we if we lose uh, that sense of uh, innocent until proved guilty, we've lost a great deal uh, uh, in our society. So I, I worry a lot about about that. Just because you, you know anybody can pop up and accuse anybody of anything, and everybody goes into a moral panic uh, and drops their shows and does this and does that. It's not right until it until until it's been proven. If you're asking me what call I would have made, I would have publicly said, look, we're going to run the show. Um, people are in, entitled to due process in this country. And he's innocent, innocent until proved guilty. And we certainly uh, won't be employing him again until this is this matter is, is resolved one way or another. I am very worried about um, what you say, which is um, trial by allegation. I'm very worried because if you have a look... Guilt by accusation. Yes, guilt by accusation. I mean, yes, there were 20 people who have uh, said that he, he behaved appallingly to them. But, you know, there have been accusations about very um, eminent entertainers, which have never resulted in charges, never resulted in any kind of court case. And yet for those people, you know, singers, comedians, DJs, their life was wrecked. People have so much to lose just by the story appearing before there's any evidence. But I'm strongly a supporter uh, of the idea that you can't name anybody until they're charged. And if you do want to name, if there is a good case to name them before they're charged, the police should have to go to a judge and get permission to name them because that's the only way to get the evidence. You know, they've got plenty of evidence, not quite enough. They know the guy's been at it or the girl's been at it. You should have to go to before a judge and make the case why you want them named. What we say in Childline is we have to take them seriously. Yes, yes. 
not every allegation is true. No, there are mischievous people out there who, you know, who will say think terrible things about people because mm. they've got some other beef. But but you have to you have to listen and you have to take it seriously. That's absolutely right, Michael. Uh, we ask all our honoured guests if there's a particular cause that they'd like to uh, talk about, and I believe you've chosen sepsis. Why is that? Sepsis is blood poisoning, basically, what we used to call septicemia. 50,000 people a year die in this country from, from sepsis. It is absolutely a killer. It's one of the biggest killers in this country. It's, if it's spotted early enough, it's the simplest thing in the world to cure with intravenous antibiotics. Not a problem. But if you get it and it takes hold, your organs shut down and you die and you lose or you lose limbs and, and so on. And the problem with it is awareness. But we've got um, somebody who knows all about this from his own experience, John. I don't know if John is listening to us at the moment. Are you there, John? Yes, I am indeed. So doubtless you agree with um, every word Michael says. Tell us a little bit about your story. Yeah, I absolutely uh, agree with uh, what Michael was saying because it is this lack of awareness. Basically what happened with myself, I was at Chelden Races. Um, with it being so busy, I moved a step too much to the right-hand side and banged my leg. And I realised well, that's going to be sore the next day, but I carried on and enjoying the day. The next day the leg was sore. Um, and the following day was even worse and I just noticed I was really tender to the touch and it started to become inflamed and as the day progressed I felt worse and worse and I just couldn't quite understand it the following day um, I was struggling to put weight on the leg and I knew instinctively and intuitively that there's something not quite right I got my brother and a friend of mine to drive me to the hospital, went into the hospital, the hospital, they'd done x-rays, checked me over um, and said that um, we'll give you some floxacillin and you have cellulitis. So I went, okay. He said, go see your doctor in seven days and, you, and you'll be fine. I went away, I was feeling a bit daft because I'd packed an overnight bag in the car. I was thinking, God, how silly am I? The following day, I was feeling even worse. I felt if I put any weight on the leg, the leg was going to snap. I went straight back to the hospital. The exact same doctor saw me a different response this time. Three and a half months I was in hospital. I left uh, with my right leg amputated above the knee. And I was very lucky. I was the boy who lived. It's great that you have such a, a, a positive attitude having gone through that experience. But as you know from, your, from the knowledge you now have, you, you are one of the lucky ones. It doesn't sound like you've been very lucky, but you are lucky to be to be still with us and functioning 100%. There's, there's a lot of people I come across who are survivors of sepsis, and they've never recovered. Um, and I feel with me, I have to get out there and use the platform that I've got. Um, I think people might be as well. Once they leave hospital, here's where hospitals fall down because of the lack of signposting. They'll say, well, Sir or madam, you have had sepsis, but you don't have it anymore. You have sepsis for the rest of your life because of the attack on your internal organs. Your heart is never the same again. Your kidneys are never the same again. The PTSD that you go through, you change. Your personality changes, and people don't understand that either. It's sepsis that you, you continue with that. And obviously, you need to educate your family, your friends, 
your workplace because it, it, it not only impacts you in the immediate, it impacts you, it impacts you massively, short-term, medium-term and long-term as well. While we've got you, can you quickly run through the six signs that people need to look out for? No, it's sepsis. So it's uh, the S is slurred speech or confusion. The E is extreme shivering or muscle pain. The P, now this is really important because it's passing note urine. But because of your internal organs getting attacked, the first organs that attack are the kidneys. And the kidneys are very hissy organs. So what happens? Your blood pressure drops right down and you stop going the loop. It's severe breathlessness. This is when your throat is constricting. Um, the eye is a feeling that you're going to die. Now, I know that feeling. It's a very, very strange feeling. I'm virtually everybody I know who's had sepsis and been hospitalised to it has this aura. You do feel you're going to die. And the last one is skin mottled or discoloured. And my leg is purple. Um, they are the six signs. Even if you're displaying three or four of them, then the question should be, do you think it's sepsis? Okay. Well, I think I think we'll all, if, if we get any of those sepsis symptoms, I think that that's the first question we'll ask. John, thank you so much. Thank that you, was, John. Good to meet you. It's been wonderful speaking to you. Thanks for giving us the opportunity. No, well, thank you. I think we could talk for, uh, this is a whole week of podcasts with you, I, I feel. We ask all of our guests if they could take an object to the afterlife, what would it be? And could you paint a picture for us all as to what you think the afterlife is going to look like? Blimey. Face of my family. Everybody in it. What do you think the afterlife's going to look like? I'll deal with it when I get there. Well, I think once you're up there, all the people that you... Down there. Or down there. <laughs> up there or down there, all the people that you cajoled onto the stage out of their dressing rooms, that you got them their television series, that you protect them. They'll all be there in their prime. And Judy Garland will not be late. <laughs> the late Judy Garland will not be late. That's a fantasy. There's a fantasy. There's a fantasy. Listen, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. It's been Fantastic. It's been a bloodbath of nostalgia. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely true. Well, what can you say? He's been there, seen it, done it, hasn't he? Gosh, the memories, the memories. Uh, just time for a quick life hack, Esther, from uh, Rebecca. Um, she says, did you know that if you run out of bleach and you have a sticky loo, I'm not quite sure what she means by sticky loo, just put a bottle of Coke other fizzy drinks are available, down it before you go to bed. It works a treat and the loo will be sparkling in the morning. It certainly gives you something to, um, somewhere to put that bottle of Coke that um, you're trying to avoid drinking. Isn't that extraordinary? Do you remember on that slide we used to clean saucepans with ketchup and, and do things like that? Yes, yes. It's all come back into vogue, you know, lemons on the ends of your taps to get, away, get rid of the lime scale and things, yeah. But imagine being the person who doesn't know that you've dropped a bottle of Coke down the loo and gets up in the morning and staggers into the bathroom <laughs> and looks down. The, just imagine. I'd be on the phone to the doctor straight away.
that is the end of our podcast. If you'd like to subscribe to join us again for more toilet humour, then um, that's Afterlife podcast can be found. Uh, remember, we'll be re- reading your letters each episode, so make sure you send your views to, and where you're going to find it, hello at that'safterlife.com. That's hello at that'safterlife.com. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us. Bye. That's Afterlife is a Captive Minds production and is series produced by Ross Haley. The creator and executive producer is Liz Mills. (laughs) 